The scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians 10, 23-11-1. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is said before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. And as you're seated, I'll just introduce myself to you. If you've not yet had the chance to meet me, my name is Brant. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Christ City Church. And uh, again, if you've not had a chance to meet me, grab me after the gathering. I do want to meet you. Uh, it's just great to, to meet new folks as they come and visit us here at Christ City Church, so I'd love to do that. Um, but as you uh, now are seated and we're ready, let's go to the Lord in prayer to ask for his help as we open up uh, this passage of scripture together. Father, I come to you um, and I ask, Lord, would you help us this morning? Lord, would you help me to speak words that are to your glory? Father, would you Help everyone who is here, Lord, to have receptive hearts to be served by the Word of God. Lord, would your Holy Spirit change us from a congregation, Father, um, uh, Lord, in the areas that we struggle still to, to honor and to glorify Jesus, uh, to glorify Jesus in the whole of our lives and whatever we eat and drink and say and do in all things. We want to know more of his life, the life that is in Jesus. We want to live for you wholeheartedly. So we ask that you would help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to jump just straight into our text this morning. Uh, we're in our series in 1 Corinthians, and we've been covering this long section of scripture that began in chapter 8, verse 1, and they went to 11, verse 1 that we just read in the letter to 1 Corinthians. And it's a section that Paul's been talking about food sacrificed to idols. And in the beginning of this section about food sacrifice to idols, Paul shared these words. He said, now concerning food offered to idols, in 8 verse 1. As we know that all of us possess knowledge, and this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And there might be like three of you that remember that when I preached on that text such a long time ago, uh, that I used the illustration of a bouncy castle versus a real castle. 
That, that there's two things that have the appearance of structure and of substance, but one only the reality. You weigh down that balance of Dante Castle, it just collapses under the pressure. Uh, you try to, to weigh down the, the castle made of stone and it, and it lasts for hundreds of years. There's something of substance and of worth there because of the way that it's been built. And likewise, Paul has been speaking throughout this letter and in this section about this church as he wants it to grow up into something of real substance. He wants the Corinthian church to grow up into real substance. The knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And he wants that structure to be established, the glory of God. He wants us to grow up as a church into the fullness of purpose and satisfaction and wholeness that can corporately be ours in a rich communion with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and with one another in unity. This glorious and beautiful thing that he wants us to grow up into. And so as Paul concludes this section then about food sacrifice to idols, he summarizes what he's been saying all along, and he tells us how we can live constructively as a church. How we can live constructively together as this new community, which is the church. He tells us that it's not by using our freedom selfishly. Merely as a means to please ourselves, uh, a means of pleasing ourselves that, that bleeds out into idolatry that we talked about last week when Jonathan led us in that passage of Scripture, the one that came before. But instead, to live constructively by using our freedom as Christians to love others to the glory of God. So this morning... If you're someone here who is hungering and thirsting, wanting to know how can I live a life that's constructive, Paul has a good word for you. Listen up. We're going to look at three points as we unpack what Paul has to say to us. We're going to look at freedom and love and glory. So look at verse 23 in our first point, freedom. Paul says, all things are lawful. Notice the quotation marks. It's a quotation from the community in Corinth. And then Paul responds, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. But Corinthians, not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. You see, Paul starts this passage and he's contrasting two different kinds of freedom. On the one hand, he's talking about the freedom of the culture, a freedom that looks good on the outside, but robs you of true life and meaning and purpose, that substantive reality of, of established fullness of life. On the other hand, he's talking about the freedom of the Christian that leads to wholeness as a temple of the church is built up into flourishing life with God and with one another. So look at that phrase, all things are lawful. That's the freedom of the culture. And this phrase was something the Corinthians quoted because they had been so influenced by their own culture in Corinth, even as Christians. And they got Christian freedom wrong and they were led into error. As they said, all things are lawful. And they made this mistake, I think, pretty honestly. After all, the Corinthians understood something true about the good news about Jesus, the good news about freedom. They understood that we're saved not by painstakingly following a set of rules, but that we're saved by faith 
by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. That's how we're saved, Christ City. Jesus doesn't save you because of what you watch or what you don't watch. He doesn't save you because of what you wear or don't wear. The music you listen to or the music you don't listen to, what you do or you don't do. I want to encourage all of you and I want you all to know that the good news in the gospel is that God is pleased with us, that he loves us, that he accepts us, that he welcomes us and fills us with his spirit for one reason. Because we have trustingly and submissively turned to Jesus in faith to save us. That's it. Trustingly, submissively turned to Jesus. Jesus, I need you to save me. And he says, yes, I will. And we trust in Jesus. We're free from the burden of trying to live a perfect life to earn God's favor. And the Corinthians knew this and they rejoiced. Praise God. But this gospel freedom that we're talking about, it's like a road, a gospel freedom, a Christian freedom road that has a ditch on either side. And the one ditch is, is this ditch and this air that, that, well, you know, I know I'm free, but I think I got to follow all of these rules. If I observe carefully every minute detail of my life in all of these additional areas, then God will be pleased with me. It's not trusting in Jesus. But then the gospel error on the other side of the road is this error that says, man, I'm free in Jesus. And that means that all things are lawful. That means that I can do whatever I would like to do. And there's grace. And there's forgiveness. That means I can live how I want, as I want, because I am free. It's autonomous freedom. And autonomous is an interesting word. Autonomous is, is two words, auto and nomos. You know, auto referring to the self, it's self. And nomos referring to law or rule, it's self-rule. It's a freedom that says, I'm the one who's the master of my fate, the master of my universe. I'm in charge. I will rule my life the way that I want. And as some of these Corinthians embraced gospel freedom, they overcorrected into the autonomous freedom ditch and they made this error because their lives are more influenced by the culture of Corinth than by the life of Jesus Christ. And as we've seen in this letter so far, it wasn't constructive. It led to the church being torn down, not built up. You know, Christ City, it's the same for us. It's the same for us as Christians living today. I don't know if you are aware of this because it's the water in which you swim and, and like trying to explain water to a fish, you know, he asks, what's water? But the culture in which we swim praises one value above everything else, worships one thing above everything else. They worship autonomous freedom. The freedom of the individual to be free to rule our bodies and our lives exactly as we please. And their culture thinks that it will lead us to life, but it doesn't. And I think just like the Corinthians were more influenced by Corinth than by Christ, I think we struggle in the same ways. I think that the culture that we live in bleeds into our lives in surprising and undeniable ways. It's so easy, I think, even for us here in this church to believe that our right to do what we want with our body is sacred. 
even if it is a heinous sin against a glorious and loving creator God whose purposes and intentions for us as his creation are so good. Because autonomous freedom is the water we swim in, I think we're sympathetic to our world's perspective. And I think it leads us to begin in various ways to compromise on biblical truth, the glory of God. I want to give you a couple of concrete examples of what I'm talking about. Well, first, uh, the unanimous voice of orthodox, global, historic Christianity is that abortion is murder. It's that we're living in a holocaust that's worse than the holocaust. But I think you can tell how far we've bought into the world's narrative of self-rule because of how embarrassed we are about that language. Or maybe because sometimes, if we're honest, we're offended by Christians that are courageous enough to speak honestly about life. And our embarrassment about the Bible's teaching is tragic. Because God has so much more for us than a freedom that destroys. God's view of life is beautiful and good and true. I was so rebuked in my own heart uh, last week in this. I wasn't going to share, I just want to share this. I, I had this moment where I had a moment of silence and I was riding in a bus and I started thinking about um, my, our own miscarriage, Heather miscarried back in December. And I just started weeping. But I think I was weeping because I finally began to think about that life the way that God wants me to think about that life. The way that is good and beautiful and true. And of all of these unborn lives made in God's image to his glory. I think we're only, we're only going to be a witness for that truth when we're clear about a good and loving God who counts the lives of the unborn as precious. There's another example I think about, about the problems of our self-rule and the death to which it leads. Um, and similarly, the unanimous voice of orthodox and global and historic Christianity speaks against it. And it's this. The, the long voice of the church has been that God has lovingly designed biological differences between men and women. It's part of his good design to his glory. And that sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed between one man and one woman married to one another. And again, I think it's so easy to become embarrassed and apologetic about the teaching of the Bible because of our friends or our family or our co-workers who worship an autonomous freedom that's different than ours. But embracing this autonomous freedom, it won't bring life. It doesn't bring life and it can't bring life. It hurts us. You see, families are torn apart through sexual immorality. And broken families lead to broken kids with poor outcomes in every measurable area of their lives. When we live for autonomy in sex, we use one another selfishly. We don't care about one another. We lead to heartbreak and sorrow upon sorrow. There's no such thing as free love. Not in the way the world says. 
And by teaching that we can alter our God-given gender or sex, we set up a whole generation for catastrophic pain and suffering. Because we treat our confused and precious children like science experiments experiments with life-altering results that cannot deliver the flourishing and happiness that they desire. All in the name of autonomous freedom. All in the name that, that we will find life for ourselves if we rule ourselves. But it won't. It can't lead to life. And even when we don't see yet that that the decisions that we're making, the direction that we're going leads to death, it will. The Bible is clear. I think the flourishing life that God has for us in Christ is clear. This direction will not lead to where we want it to go. The thief comes, Jesus says, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And he says, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. He wants something so much better for us. This is why Paul says to the Corinthians, all things are lawful. Yes, Corinthians, sure. But not all things are helpful. There's a limit to this freedom. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Corinth, let no one seek his own good according to his own rule, but the good of his neighbor. All things are lawful. And if you're a Christian, you're truly free. Praise God. There's a glorious and better freedom in Jesus. But it's not just a freedom from authority. It's a freedom for something incredible and good. A freedom to live for what is helpful and constructive with a life of truth and beauty and meaning that's supremely good and joyful in relationship and obedience to God. It's a freedom that you can't have apart from Jesus Christ. That's why if the Son, Jesus, sets you free, then you are free indeed and only in him. You know, uh, this is troubling for us, I admit. We, we struggle with this stuff. I know we do. And I was so encouraged talking to one of the congregation here a few weeks back. I won't share her name because I didn't ask her if I could share this story. Um, but we were talking about a few different things. And, and she told me how when she became a Christian uh, late in her life, how she's like, you know, Brent, I, th- I was worried. I, I had all these concerns about all the things that I would have to give up in my life to become a Christian. And she looked at me with a sparkle in her eye and she just laughed. She says, I was so wrong. I haven't lost anything in following Jesus. I've only gained. I've only gained in living according to his rule in my life. See, freedom in Christ is powerful and it's much better than autonomous self-rule in the way that our culture worships those things. I want to show you we're talking about as we turn to our second point now and look at the glorious freedom that we have in Christ as we're free to love. See, Christian freedom isn't about merely doing what you please. It's about freely choosing to love others for their good. And now as Paul begins to give us a positive view of gospel freedom in loving one another, he first actually has a word for one of the groups of people in Corinth. He first has a word uh, for a group of people that have been driving down the road of Christian freedom and they drove out into the ditch of illegalism. And he wants to talk to them first before he flushes out this fullness of what it means to, to live in freedom and love for one another. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 25 to 26. 
is eat whatever is sold in the marketplace without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. Quoting from Psalm 24, verse 1. There are some Corinthians, there were some Corinthians who had such sensitive consciences that they began to elevate different issues in their lives, particularly the issue of eating meat. Uh, didn't matter if it was eating meat uh, in the temple as an act of worship. Uh, they wanted to know if this meat, and at any point in its life, had taken part in, in a religious sacrifice of some kind, and they had elevated the issue of eating or not eating this meat to, the, to a sin issue. And they wanted to know, we, we can't participate in any of that. It's a sin issue, Paul. If you even eat it accidentally, it's wrong. And Paul wants these Christians to grow in their faith. Paul wants these Christians to let go of their unnecessary legalistic scruples. Paul says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Paul says, God is the one true God and all things are his. Praise him. You don't need to burden your conscience by asking questions about where that meat came from. Don't do that. Just receive it with thanksgiving and praise God that he gave you meat to eat. Be thankful. I think this is a really good word for us, Christ City. Because those of us especially that grew up in the church, I think we can tend towards a legalistic Phariseeism. It's like, it's a fancy word that just means the Pharisees that, that were the legalistic par excellence people uh, in the stories of Jesus and the Gospels. I think that, that lots of us have this tendency as well. We start to believe that God will only be pleased with us if we precisely follow these various things in our lives. All these additional laws and, and scruples that we bring in. But that's legalism and it's not gospel freedom. It robs us of joy. I want you to remember that God is pleased with you, accepts you, loves you, and forgives you. We're going to talk about it again. We talked about this already a second. I'm going to say it again. Not because of the food you eat, not because of the clothing that you wear, not because of the music that you listen to, not because of the number of hours you put in in your work week, not because of the grades that you get or you don't get but because you have put your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ to save you. Amen. It's so freeing. See, legalism is enslaving and it fills us with fear. There's a glorious freedom of gospel, love, and freedom that Paul wants us to know. That's why he says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's all his. It's a gift to you. And then in 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 to 5, Paul says, For everything created by God is good. Christ's city, it's good. And nothing's to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So Christian, whoever you are, with a sensitive conscience, be free. Be free to receive this good world that God's made as his gift to you with thanksgiving. And be warned. There's a reason Paul's saying this. And the reason is this. Sometimes your over-scrupulous judgments will inhibit you from sharing the love of Christ with others. They're going to become an obstacle for you to be able 
to share the love of Christ with somebody who doesn't see things quite the way that you see them. And you're going to judge that person. You're not going to love them. And Paul wouldn't have that. Paul wants there to be no obstacle in the way of the gospel, but the gospel itself. So Paul wants legalistic Christians to receive the good things God has made with thanksgiving so they can flex in their lives a little bit and share Christ with their neighbors, however is necessary. And he wants Corinthians who tended to only think of themselves and their use of their freedom to stop it already and to love other people by choosing to sacrifice for others' good. Look at verses 24 and 27 to 30. Let no one seek his own good merely, but the good of his neighbor. And then Paul goes on into an example and he writes this. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, hey, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. All right, there's a lot in here. I think there's some principles that are very clear. It is a bit confusing. Um, I'm going to try and unpack it a little bit so we can get some of the clear principles from it. First of all, in verse 21, when Paul says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, you need to realize that that you there is a plural you. It's a plural you. And that's obscured, of course, in written English because we have um, only one word for uh, a second person singular. That's you. It's only you. Unless you're in America and you say y'all, or unless you're in the East Coast and you say Ewins, which is crazy. I don't know. Ewins needs to die. That's a strange way to to, to talk. Um, But in our text, it's confusing. But Paul is being clear. This is not uh, if uh, one of you invited over for dinner. This is this. If one of the unbelievers invites a few of you over to dinner. It's talking about a little dinner party with several Christians at it. It's a dinner party, an unbeliever's place. You and a few of your Christian friends are hanging out. And then Paul says in verse 28, and if someone says to you, hey, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. All right, so follow what Paul is saying here. The someone here is a fellow Christian who came to the party with you. And that person is a legalistic Christian with a weak conscience and lots of scruples. And Paul says, you know what? When they say that to you, you're to love that person. You're to love that person. Be careful for them. In the words of Andrew Nisali and J.D. Crowley, and they're commenting on this passage And they comment in their wonderful book, by the way, Conscience. If you're looking for a little book that will help you think through issues of Christian freedom and conscience, the book called Conscience by Andrew Nisali, that I'm going to quote from, is an awesome resource. And you should buy it and read through it. And they said this about this passage. They say, Christian liberty is about another Christian Corinthian at the same party who has no scruples against eating meat. And just as he gets ready to dig into that slab of steak on his plate, oh, it's going to be glorious. Praise God for meat. I'm so thankful Someone sitting next to him leans over and says, don't eat it. It's been sacrificed. And for for the sake of that man and his weak conscience, the meat lover puts down his fork and says, thanks for telling me that. It's a little sorrowful perhaps, but he loves his brother. 
See, Christian freedom is this, and Paul's been talking about this a lot, but here's a summary. Christian freedom is the freedom to be flexible. The freedom to be flexible in order to love others for the good. In order to love others for their good and the building up of the church and the evangelism of the lost. Christian freedom is a freedom to be flexible, to love others for their good, for the unity of the church, and for the sake of the lost, they might be saved and come to know Jesus Christ. And we're free in Christ. Maybe you prefer a little bit of meat, then you see how it will negatively affect this person, so you lovingly, lovingly choose not to eat it for their sake and for the sake of the church. And for the sake of preventing a situation, you can imagine where that person with their scruples, they're just going to judge you for it. It's going to create division in an unnecessary and unhelpful way. So you be careful about that. I think there's a bunch of examples we can think about if we try to bring this into life in Vancouver. I want to give you several to try to just flush this out a little bit and see if it will help us. I think in the same way in Vancouver, you might express your freedom in Christ by choosing not to drink alcohol when you're around someone who has a weak, a weak conscience regarding alcohol. And there still are some Christians who have weak consciences regarding alcohol. And you do that so as not to heedlessly let their weak conscience judge you and create disunity and tear down the church rather than build it up. You might express your freedom in Christ by choosing to adjust what you wear at certain times. Because although the Bible doesn't have any diagrams or measurements about what modest clothing looks like, different cultures and different Christians have different understandings of what modesty means. And out of love, There'll be times when, when you adjust what you might do because other people would be offended by it. They judge you with their weak conscience for it. You might express your freedom in Christ by choosing not to eat meat in order to win your vegetarian neighbors to Jesus. You might exercise your freedom in Christ not to eat meat in order not to offend your formerly Hindu Christian brothers and sisters who still haven't sorted out a biblical theology of meat. You might decide to not eat pork around your former Muslim Christians if they've not quite worked that out either. You might express your freedom in Christ by choosing not to dance or to dance in worship, depending on what would lovingly lead to the building up of the church and those around you in Jesus Christ and for the salvation of them. If you're a missionary ever and you head out to Africa and you stay like this still in the worship in Africa, your ministry is going to be horrible. You need to flex a little bit for Jesus and give up your scruples about moving in the worship service. You might express your freedom in Christ by choosing to wear less expensive clothing or jewelry among those who can't afford the same things that you can, depending on what might lead to their growth in Christ and unity of the church and the salvation of others. See, Paul's whole point is that we are free in Christ to be very flexible in order to do what leads to other salvation, to do what leads to the building up of the church and the unity of the church. Just as Paul summarized in verses 32 to 33, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. I mean, I feel like Paul could have just said, don't be an idiot. You know, like, like just don't be that arrogant person that, that insists on just always doing things your way. He says, just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they might be saved. 
Praise God. You know, there is an objection here, though. There's a couple of them. One of them is this. Um, it kind of looks like people-pleasing, doesn't it? Right? It, it sounds like that. Like, hey, if people have scruples in the congregation, just like, just bend over backwards to make everybody happy all the time. That's not what Paul's saying. It's not what Paul's saying. In Christ's city, <clears throat> God is not glorified by a bland and inoffensive Christian life. I think that we read that in this passage sometimes. But Paul has a goal and a purpose in mind for all of his flexing. It's all according to the word of God. All according to the glory of God. All so that it will lead to someone's eternal well-being, not just that they won't be offended, but to lead to their eternal well-being. And that takes a lot of wisdom, I think, to sort out. But I think it's a wisdom that we need to try to practice as mature Christians in Jesus Christ. There's another objection to this passage, though, and actually Paul raises it himself rhetorically in verse 29, because Paul says, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I'm free in Jesus, why do I got to walk around handcuffed in my freedom with Jesus? Because you guys are all offended with me all the time. That's frustrating. I don't like it very much. Well, in the context of what Paul's been writing, and again, in the context of this image that he's painting of a church that is being built up, that's being constructed in wholeness and unity, I think he'd say this if he was in the room. He'd say, well, why? Well, because willingly and freely giving up your rights out of love for others, it's something that you can do to build up the church. And if you always just insist on your own way all the time, that's going to lead to all of these unnecessary divisions. It's not what a good church family does. We forbear with one another in love. We're gentle and patient and kind with people and their different walks of faith. We're aware of where, where they are in their walk with Jesus. We try to accommodate them where appropriate in ways that will lead to their growth and to the unity of this church. And Paul wants that. So let's build this thing up strong. <laughs> let's not just go running wild with our own freedoms. See, Christ City, there's an opportunity in this text and a call in this text, I think, for us as Christians to live as a different kind of community in this world. Our freedom's so different. Our freedom's a freedom that is intentionally oriented to helping one another grow together in Jesus. It's a freedom that leads to growth as a community versus the freedom of the world that says, autonomous freedom for me, which leads to anarchy. Right, Because my anarchy, fixated, personal self-rule will bump into yours. We see it all the time right now in our culture. It's like, I want to rule me, you want to rule you, you want to rule you, and it leads to chaos and division. And Paul's like, there's something better for you in Jesus. Be built up together in unity. By the way, sounds an awful lot like Jesus. When Paul spoke in Philippians chapter 2, giving instructions to the church, the person who perfectly met his instructions is Jesus. Paul said this, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, no matter how much you like bacon, but also the interests of others. See, Paul wants us to grow up into all 
the goodness, all the fullness of the life that we have in Christ Jesus. And he wants us to do that first by using our freedom to sacrifice out of love for one another. And second, by using our freedom to the glory of God. Look at our last point, glory with me in verses 10, 31 to 11, 1. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, Christ said, he do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Isn't that glorious? It's beautiful. What on earth does it mean? Right? We can nod our heads and amen. We're like, yeah, 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 Brent. Great. I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> what does it mean? Well, we glorify God. And this is what glorifying God is, is by living our lives in such a way that we are showing other people how wonderful and awesome he is. So glorifying God is. God is glorified when we're praising him. He's wonderful. We're we're magnifying him, making him famous. That's how we glorify him. And we do that in a couple of different ways in scripture. Two ways I want to share with you right now. We do it by our obedience to God, our submission to God. And we do it by our love for others. And these two things are so appropriate for us as we think about what it means to glorify God because Jesus Christ is the one who glorified God more than any other. His whole life was about the glory of God. And you know how Jesus glorified the Father? Through his obedience, through his sacrificial love. We're going to do the same thing. Let's look at obedience first. I want you to see how how global a vision for life glorifying God can be. This is an all-encompassing, glorifying God life. It's a big life of freedom and meaning and purpose that has to do with the whole of creation. It's not a minuscule, cordoned off, restricted life. I think sometimes because of words like obedience, we picture the Christian life as a restricted confined life. And at first glance, not having self-rule feels a little bit like being enslaved. What do you mean I don't get to be in charge? That sounds restrictive. And I get it. I mean, also I get it because a lot of people explain Christianity so poorly that this is the only logical conclusion they have. It must be a really restricted, narrow, terrible life to follow Jesus. I don't know that I want to do that. For example, when I was a kid, I heard this awful illustration about Christian freedom and liberty. And it was this. The story was about a family that had a farm and out back in the farm, they had this enclosure where they had captured a wild deer. And the story was being told from the perspective of the wild deer how they longed to be out in the woods. Uh, But over time, they learned that this enclosure was so nice because they were safe from predators. And and they had the the kids come along and pet them. and, And you know what? It's better to be in a cage. Like, what an awful, anemic, horrific view of Christian freedom, the glory of God that is. It's not what Paul has in mind here. It's not what Paul has in mind because it's not what we see in Jesus. It restricts the scope of glorifying God to a life that's only in part of the created world that we seem and we deem is comfortable and safe and protected. That's not right. It's not the whole earth 
The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And then when we look at Jesus Christ himself, what do we see? Do we see Jesus who perfectly glorified God through his obedience? Do we see him with a restricted, narrow life that stayed in a little holy bubble all contained? No, we see Jesus in his earthly life, obedient to the Father, running out into all of the earth. He went out boldly into the world as the truly human, human being. As one who is free in ways that we are growing into and are not yet there. And his obedience to the Father didn't enslave him. It gave life to everyone around him wherever he went. His obedience was the obedience of true humanity taking its rightful place of dominion and flourishing life within this creation. To return to the narrow, anemic view of Christian freedom in the deer in captivity illustration, Jesus' freedom of obedience to the Father isn't the freedom of something weak like a deer. It's not what it is. It's a freedom of a beloved son existing with dominion and authority and the whole of his father's world. It's a freedom that blows off the gates and walls of every life-hindering, satisfaction-stealing, joy-robbing lie of the enemy in this world. It's a freedom that goes forth and takes the gates of hell captive with life. As Jesus goes out and fills the world with the glory of God in triumph. This is the obedience to the glory of God that we're called to. Christ, this world that we live in is Jesus' world. Make no mistake. It belongs to him. He rules over all of it. I love this quote by the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper. I read it to you two weeks ago or something. Let me read it again. There is not a square inch in the whole of creation over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine is his world. And we've been filled as Christians now with this incredible freedom because it's his spirit his true humanity that is renewing our humanity and dwelling within us so that we can now go forward into every area of our lives and this world to the glory of God. To bring life and flourishing in our marriages, in our families, in our workplaces, with our friends and with our neighbors, with our talents, with our recreation. And every place that you go, whether you're an artist or a mechanic, living to the glory of God. Doing everything that is within your power to, to just make Jesus look wonderful. Living in obedience to him. So first, we live a life that glorifies God when we live joyful, obedient lives to God according to his word. But second, we live a life that gives glory to God when we imitate Jesus' sacrificial love. Look again at verses 32 to 11, 1. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. See, Paul imitated Jesus, who glorified the Father by freely sacrificing his life for the good of others. Even though Jesus was obedient to the Father to the point of death on the cross, his was the most constructive life 
of all lives that have been. And on that cross, Jesus, who is God incarnate, God become human. He bled and he died for your forgiveness. He poured out his life so you could be truly free. So you could be reconciled with God, the one that you were made to made for. So you could be filled with his Holy Spirit, the presence of God with you and in you forever. So you can be forgiven for every act of selfish self-rule that you have committed or will commit. And who gets the glory? When we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, who gets the glory? We marvel at a God who gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. See, God is glorified by Jesus' sacrificial, obedient love. He's the paradigm. Jesus is our paradigm of what it means to be a Christian using our freedom to the glory of God, living in obedience to the Father, living in sacrificial love for one another. So Christ City, as we close, let me just say this. There's good news here in this text. The good news is that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, you can be truly free. See, autonomy looks like freedom, but it just enslaves you to things that don't bring you life. Jesus can free you from that. He can give you real life. He can forgive you and draw you into a glorious meaning and purpose, stuffed full reality as you live for him. And the way to receive it is simple. It's through repentance and faith. So I want to invite all of you guys as, as we turn now to our time of worship and communion to respond with me by repenting of the ways that we've held on to our autonomous freedom, the ways that we've been influenced by our culture and we worship the things that our culture worships but don't bring life, and to turn in faith to, to Jesus the one who can bring us true life and true Christian freedom, live for his glory and obedience and love.